Hey guys, you're listening to the Base Path Podcast. Um, this is going to be the first podcast interview that I conduct on the show. And today we're interviewing uh, Coach Aaron Tarr. Um, he's the head coach at Marshall High School. Um, fun fact, if you watch Remember the Titans, uh, Marshall High School is the school that the Titans of T.C. Williams beat in uh, the championship. Just fun fact of the day. That's kind of irrelevant to um, our conversation. But Aaron's a really smart, enlightened guy, um, does some really awesome stuff with the programming uh, for his high school team. Um, you can follow him on Instagram at Coach Tar GCM. Um, I'll post that in the description. The conversation that we had was awesome. Um, you know, we touched on a lot of baseball stuff and his career path and kind of how that was a winding road, kind of like mine was. But also, um, one of the things that we talk about is really philosophy because he studied that in college. So I wanted to kind of pick his brain on that. And we talked a lot about, you know, how we come to the decisions and the conclusions that we do about what we believe is true, which has some really interesting, uh, you know, coaching applications. Cause you know, when we develop programming, we have to make a decision about what we believe is true in the swing or in the throw or whatever. Um, so really, really interesting stuff. Um, Aaron's also, um, the head of business development at an awesome, uh, throwing facility called R and D baseball. That's also located, um, near here as well. So really excited to bring this podcast episode to you and I hope you enjoy. I'm going to apologize in advance just for the sound quality on my end. Um, you know, this is the first interview I did. So the, uh, audio, coming from my mic wasn't as good as the audio coming from his mic. Um, I think you can understand a hundred percent of what I said, but, um, at some points it's just not as clean as I would have liked, but we're going to run with it anyway. And I hope you guys enjoy. All right. So I guess let's just kind of start from like the beginning. Um, so you obviously started playing baseball at like a pretty young age and are from the area. Yep. Um, how'd you, how'd you get into that? Um, uh, you know, you hear like a lot of kids talk about how they started e-ball when they were five and I actually, I actually didn't do that. I didn't start until I was like maybe eight in organized baseball because my, my parents are, my dad's a very baseball involved guy, but they're also not people that, um, want to press stuff on their kids. So they kind of waited until, until I wanted to do that, I guess, um, which didn't happen until I was eight. Uh, so, you know, my, my grandfather worked for Louisville Slugger for 60 years as a tree surveyor. And my dad, um, you know, had a trial with the pirates when he was, you know, 20 years old or something like that. So I had a little, I had at least baseball related background, um, sort of in my, in my blood, I guess. And, uh, so, you know, that's, that's really why I started playing ball. And then my dad started coaching me after, in my first year or two playing organized ball, because if you grew up in Northern Virginia in the eighties, uh, it's just not like it is now where everything is hyper organized and, and, uh, um, and really well resourced. It was kind of, uh, very open and every, every dad was the coach. There was just not, there weren't paid coaches. There weren't, there was none of that, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, Dads who had time were the ones that did it, not not people who were knowledgeable. This guys who, who could figure out the time to volunteer. 
Yeah, it sounds like my my childhood. Vermont was not hyper organized at all. It still isn't. Right. Yeah. My dad coached me a ton too, so I hear you right. there. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Um so you ended up going you went to Yorktown, right? Yeah, I went to Yorktown, um and then I went to Hamilton and I played I actually at, at Yorktown I um started playing varsity at the end of my freshman year, but Never, never played as a as a freshman in, in a varsity game. Just got on the roster at the end of the season as a call up. And then my sophomore year, I played. I, I kind of was one of those kids who grew really early, so I was like a five eleven freshman. <clears throat> so I looked like I was going to be kind of a, a a big kid. So they rotated me in at first base my sophomore year, and then I just never grew, and I ended up being sort of a, a middle infield, um, but not particularly good middle infield. Slash pitcher. I probably was actually a better pitcher in high school than I was. Anything else? <clears throat> but didn't throw hard. Just didn't walk guys and could slip a curveball and whatever count. Um, and then went to Hamilton for two years. But I, I tore my labrum in my throwing shoulder uh, my senior year. <clears throat> um, actually, somewhere in the, you know labrum tears, they like kind of a. Uh, it's not a a singular act that tends to tear guys' labrums is kind of like long-term overuse. Um, and I could feel it get bad at the end of my senior year of high school, in the high school season, and then the Legion season got really bad. And when I got to college, I, I really had a hard time throwing a ball ever. But I I could hit enough that I could still get in the outfield and, <clears throat> and play my freshman and sophomore years. But I only ever pitched... Yeah, I was kind of recruited as a two-way guy, and I was only ever able to pitch five or six innings. So you said you went, you were at Hamilton for for two years. Did you I, I was transfer there out or? Nope, I was there oh, okay. for four, but I stopped. I stopped playing after two because then I tore my left shoulder too, and it just got. And then I Man. ended up ultimately having um, having surgery on my left. My right, I still haven't had surgery to repair. After just not playing for long enough, it it, it doesn't it doesn't cause me any pain, um, and I can right. you know, I can throw kind of a lot now and don't really have a problem. But I'm also always throwing at submaximal levels, so it doesn't really matter. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're just not doing any stress to yourself if you're if everything you throw is you know at 60 percent. It doesn't matter. So right. Um, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I graduated from Hamilton. I just didn't, uh, I gave it up my junior and senior years because at that point, you know, coming back from labrum, uh, surgery was, that was a two year deal. And, right. you know, I didn't, you didn't have those years basically. And you yeah, didn't want to be exactly. a pro baseball player. So right. it is what and, it is. And even if I had, even if I had, if I had lost two, like, let's say I did it after my senior year of high school and I lost two years of playing. Uh, I wasn't going to come back from that either. Like, I, it just was one of those things where, I, I mean, I, I love the game, and I enjoyed being a baseball player, but, I, you know, there's other parts of the game that I like a lot more than, than playing it. Right. Um, so you, I was just, like, look, glancing at your, like, LinkedIn, and it says you studied philosophy? Yeah. Yep. So what was the what was the thought behind that? What was your, like, career goals at that time did you really think it out or just like i'm gonna go to college because i should and i'll study Um, whatever most guys that were in philosophy that did study philosophy at hamilton were really pre-law so okay if you're you're doing if you're you're doing like a logic based philosophical 
um, inquiry, then that ends up being good, sort of the good foundation for going to law school. I, I did not necessarily do it with that design. I did it because, well, I started with, with it saying, like, I'm going to grad school to, for something. And, you know, in the liberal arts education, you're, like, really just there to sort of, like, generally learn and, and be able to think. And philosophy ended up kind of giving you a lot of opportunities to get into some deeper moral questions and ethical questions that I enjoyed. Um, I liked ex- existentialism. I liked uh, epistemology and, like, kind of the theory of knowledge and how we decide what is true and false, which I actually find has huge applications for the baseball world, uh, which we don't necessarily need to get into. But um, And you actually, I think, as somebody who who teaches what you do and are as interested in the specifics of how things are taught and how people move and that kind of thing, it's th- speaking to other coaches and understanding why they think something is true or false is actually very interesting. And that's really what philosophy is. So, or at least what I said. So it's really like digging into like how people come to conclusions or is it just like, yeah. How do you you decide what is true and what is not true? How do you decide what constitutes knowledge and what, what arguments are there in the world that cause people to think? And and then how difficult it is, is it to somebody to sort of like take their belief system or their paradigm, have that question, and then how do you want, how do you as somebody who's trying to make an argument, and I think you probably go through this a lot um, mm-hmm. with people who are very dogmatic about their belief system, you, you know, you say like, well, what do you think about this? And then like, as you watch their sort of web of beliefs get questioned and start to unravel a little bit, you know, right. how, do, how do people deal with that? And what repercussions does it have for their other beliefs? That's, yeah. that's kind of how it works. So that's, that's super interesting. So could you give me like a non-baseball, non-controversial example of like a question that's kind of like grappled with in that way and like conclusion that might be made or is that a little bit too deep? Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, I think like not to get political here, but in regardless of what side of the political sort of fence you're on, Right. Um, the 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 way in which people now take information in and create and either like once seek to um, constantly okay. reinforce their own belief system is part Got of it. how is part of what you study in epistemology where it's like you know people seek information that reinforces their own belief systems or or and what happens when they find something that's against their belief system, it's in, it's kind of the modern world has. So it's like you watch Fox or MSNBC and you watch that because of your prior beliefs. That makes right, total sense, yeah. Right, right. and it's, yeah, and it, you know, it's philosophy, so it's not quite so, like, deterministic about it. Um, right. It's, it's, but the reason that there's an epistemological reason, like a knowledge-based belief system reason why people do that. Um, <laughs> That's yep. super interesting. So then, then you went to Europe. Um, I mean, yeah. I thought you studied, uh, geography as well, which is cool, but I'm more interested in like, how'd you, like, how did you decide that like Europe was the move? Because when I, so if you were going to do an, like a study abroad program at Hamilton, you really had to do that prior to your junior year. And because I had not, because I'd been playing ball for my freshman and sophomores, I didn't really have an opportunity to do that. So I started looking into overseas programs. Um, I mean, 
my grades at Ham Hamilton were okay, but as an overseas student, because you were paying full freight, you could get to a much better comparative university than I could have in the United States and pay significantly less. Like their system, when I went over there, I paid $15,000 a year for school, as right. opposed to like the $60,000 a year I paid to go to Hamilton. And, and, um, like the, the Brits thought that that, that paying $15,000 a year was insane because they had just gone to a system year before where they actually had to pay. Like they were paying, they're paying like a thousand, a thousand pounds a year. So they thought right. I was paying like an arm and a leg when the reality was I was paying significantly less than I would have at American University. Right. So, so it was a little bit of that. It was a, the, the type of program that I went to is actually human geography. So it's a little bit of like a, uh, convergence of anthropology and population studies and huh. um you know the, there's only like five or six there's a lot more now but 10 years ago 15 years whatever 13 years ago there were only like maybe five or six schools in in the country that were really into that um because huh. the the origin of human geography is for the most part like relatively Marxist, so that's, which is not, which I had no idea actually until I got there. I still found it interesting. Whether yeah, I, I had no idea either, but that's cool. <laughs> it, it was interesting, but, yeah. um, but I think because of that, it's, it just doesn't have like huge foundations and legs in the U.S., though has yeah. probably, I think, a growing trend of looking in, of, of doing human geography in the U.S. It's kind of spread out, but it's a very, very Western European uh, hmm. uh, discipline. That's interesting. Do you, do you think that, I mean, so you had, once again, looking at your LinkedIn, uh, but it looks like you had like a really solid amount of time, like away from baseball, right? So you yeah. started going to Hamilton in 98, right? Um, yeah. And then you would play baseball for two years, presumably there. And then it looks like you had like at least five, six years away from baseball. And that's not even counting the time when before you started working at uh, VBC. So two two questions, uh, kind of like yeah. in the same. Yeah. Um, did that time away from baseball help you approach baseball differently? And if so, how? Yeah, I would say for certain it helped. Um, I think so when I when I left – well, first of all, it made it – I think the hardest thing as a coach was a player, and almost all coaches were players, to do is get to a point where you stop saying the phrase, this is what I did when I played, because that's not a justification for anything. Uh, and I know that, like, I find personally that pro guys use that justification very frequently, but they're – but everybody, pro guys included, sense of what it was that they did versus what they actually did, there's a massive disconnect between those things, typically. Sometimes not, but most of the time there's a massive disconnect. I so, find the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's just a reality of, like, now, whatever they thought they did was really useful because it got to them to very high levels, Okay. But certainly whatever I thought I did is not necessarily – is, one, not transferable to what everybody else needs to think about what they're doing. But also, like, you know, I played D3 ball. It's not like it's a – it's not a very good argument. It's, I, it's never a very good argument, but it's definitely not a very good argument coming from somebody who says, like, this is what I did when I played. 
and what they did, what they played, didn't actually make them very successful. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, I, that that time away helped me. I spent a year saying that phrase out of like out of habit, out of trying to come up with some justification for why somebody should listen to my opinion because it wasn't like, well, I've been doing this for ten years. It was like I'm a brand new coach. It was when I was doing JV at Yorktown. I coached the JV team at Yorktown for four years. It was a great place to, to be a JV coach um, because they, uh, as a JV program, it's, it's very well resourced and you play 20 games, which is significantly more than what the JV team plays in Fairfax. So you get a lot more opportunity to get out there and coach. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it helped me not say the phrase, this is what I did when I played because I had had five years between time that I had last played and when I started coaching. I, I said it for a little while, but I was conscious of it. It was like more of a reflex. Um, and then, yeah, it just never seemed like a very good argument for me. If I, I've watched other guys do, make that transition, and you know, some guys that I really respect and I think are very good coaches, and every time I hear them say that, like some of them are friends of mine, I will, I'll turn around and say, sorry, hold on one second. You're good. Every time I hear a guy say it, I'll say like, hey, you know, if it's a guy who coaches for me or or that is my peer in some way, I'll say like, you, you actually kind of weaken your argument when you make that statement. So, like, you know what you know, so just put it out there and don't worry about trying to come up with a justification. If the justification is that it's something that you did, it's just not a strong argument. If it's something that, like, leans on science or the human body or kinesiology or... Well, your experience, actually, just general experience, and that's actually better art. So. Right. It's yeah. interesting because I, like, I had a – we had a very, very – you and I, we didn't talk about this before, but we had a very similar, like, college playing career. Like, I played two years as well, and then I had a surgery, and I then I just got weeded with, like, a ridiculously hard classes, and I thought I was going to fail. Right. So I, I stopped playing because I just yep. didn't think I was going to be, like, a pro or anything like that. Right. Um, but I remember the first – team that I coached when I first moved down to the area was a 16U team for Bradley Baseball Academy. And I remember being, it was so long since I'd like actually like hit like in a game or even just like front offs or anything like that, that I like was nervous to like hit in front of my guys. I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to sure. look like crap. I was like, this sure. is like, I haven't done this in a bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I've been researching it. So I like understood like what it was I wanted to teach, but I didn't think I could actually do it. So right. I just, for the first however long, I stayed away from even like swinging in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get that for sure. For sure. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I haven't swung in front of my guys like, like much, although every once in a while, like, I mean, my ability to hit like a moving ball that's moving at any sort of pace anymore is, is pretty weak. Um, but I also, you know, I think it, it really kind hey, of depends. Sometimes on, when the sun's out, the gun's got to come out. I hear you, man. It's so yeah, good. Sometimes yeah. I knock them off, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. but, yeah, I don't think I would do that well hitting, like, a like a really fast, fast ball right now. I just haven't haven't done it. You know, sometimes you just got to gotta see a bunch of those pitches before you exactly. yep. react. Um, so did you get right into baseball when you got out of school or was there like a transition period where you were like, okay, what, 
you know, what career am I going to gonna do? Were you kind of going down a different path, or did you know right away that you are going to do baseball when you graduated? No, so, we, yeah, I, it's kind of weird. I I got home from England and um, was looking for jobs, and most of the jobs I was looking for were in something like fundamentally philanthropic, but kind of across a lot of different um, a lot of different sort of spaces and, and focuses. Um, and then the, the athletic director at Yorktown, he's still the athletic director at Yorktown, Mike Grofeld, called me in because I had played for him when I was younger, when I was like a 13, 14-year-old kid, um, and asked me if I'd take the JV coaching job. The guy who was the head coach at Yorktown then was Mike Allen, who was my senior year was his first year as the head coach at Yorktown. You know it's only been like six or seven years since I graduated from high school, so it was like fundamentally still the same set of people. Um, so I did that. I mean, I was I I wasn't really reluctant to do it. I was like, ah, that sounds like a good you know a good thing to do. I wasn't really looking to get back into baseball. There wasn't sort of some sort of grand design on that. Um, and I would say probably for about a three year period of time, I still didn't have a grand design on that. Saying like I wasn't, I didn't get to year three of being a JV coach and say you know, it's time for me to be a varsity coach. Um, I didn't have that. I did, it didn't, I didn't have that thing. I, I wasn't looking for sort of a, a well-defined career path um, or some sort of upward mobility that way until I got to, until my fourth year at Yorktown when um, they, they kind of let the whole coaching staff go. Uh, and then I applied for a couple, a couple other varsity jobs and didn't get head coaching jobs and at, at sort of lower level programs and didn't get them. And then applied to be an assistant at Marshall and got hired to work with Joe McDonald, who in my estimation is the best, you know, there's a lot of different types of coaches as he's the singular best on field practice running a team on the day of a practice, day of a game guy that there is. So, and that was not something I was particularly good at. I, I liked teaching some of like some skills and that kind of thing, but in terms of how to organize everything down to a minute and make sure your practice had the correct pace and make sure, you know, you were using the re- resources correctly and there was no downtime and you were doing the right things and you had everything, you know, progressed correctly. Um, he was the best. He is the best, and he was, and that was a really important learning experience for me to work with him. Um, uh, and then I worked as an associate scout for the Rangers for about three years, which you know, associate scouting is like um, it's not really a job. It's it's just like a guy who calls you every once in a while and asks you some questions about the guys in your area. At that point, I get more calls now that I don't do that. Uh, about guys in the area than I did at the time. Um, actually, I get more calls from the Rangers now that I don't that I'm not officially their associate scout than I did <laughs> at the time that I was their associate scout. Oh, that's funny. Because, well, because you have you have to like have been around long enough to know what constitutes something that's actually like special talent, and then to a certain degree, you really have to understand how major league organizations make decisions, and that is like a very uh, that's like a very varied, that's a very, very, it's a, it's a varied thing across different organizations. Like they don't all make decisions the same way. So 
you have to know a lot about each of them, each of the, each organization, and get, that just takes experience. Um, and then, so, cause there are guys around here that I'll get a call about and they'll say like, Hey, what do you think about this kid? I'm like, you do not want that kid. And they're like, why? Here's great things. He's going to UVA or he's going to tech or something like that. And I'm like, but he's not like, these are the problems. And this is why you don't, it's not your prototypical. Yeah. He don't, you don't want to take him to your bosses because your bosses believe X, Y, and Z. And I know that because you've told me they do. And then and they're like, oh, yeah, I don't want that if he can't do X, Y, and Z. So, you know, it's it, – right. but when I was an associate scout, I sucked at that because I didn't know any of that stuff. And and I didn't really know, like, I'd see a kid who hit, like, 400 in high school and be like, ah, oh, he's got to be a pro guy because he's one of the best hitters around here. And they'd be like, no, because fundamentally he's just not fast enough, not big enough, not strong enough, doesn't have power – like right. doesn't have the body, blah 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 blah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that was one thing that I not that I'm like a genius at that stuff, but one thing that I really didn't understand up until like two or three years ago was like the scalability of players. Like I just yeah. was like, Oh well that this person dominates at this level, so Right. You know. I was like, Well, they should get a shot at the next and you're like, Nah, it doesn't right. quite work that way. Why are you taking yeah. the kid who hit three hundred instead of the kid who hit four hundred? Well, the kid who hit three hundred, like is not going to get dominated at the next level because he like is physically fast enough and strong enough and can use things at the same speed as those players. This kid, you know, hit yeah. 400 by, yeah, but can't move at a faster pace, right? Like that was me. I was the kid that would, you know, at the high school level, I did really, really well and I couldn't scale. Yeah, which was just weird. And once I got to college, I, di- I didn't realize that I was like behind as far as like how strong fast whatever i was until i like got the call and actually got in the game and was like oh man like this is right this is not what i thought it was you know what right. i mean yeah which is why my message to a lot of the kids that i work with now is like man like if you're not if you're not making trying to make yourself like a physical specimen and like your measurables of like how you know fast you can run how much you can lift how fast you can throw that kind of stuff, and you're just doing yourself a disservice because there's a bunch of other people that are doing that, even yeah. if they're not, even if they don't have the hand eye that you do. Like that doesn't matter at the next level at times. Yeah. So I'll say this: in the six years that I was out of the game, or the five years between when I played and when I started coaching, that shifted an enormous amount. In that year, in that span of time, and I, I think it's probably exponentially shift, like uh, snowballed into something much different even now. But like from the first year, 12 years ago when I started coaching high school baseball, to now that's changed pretty significantly. But between 2000 and 2005, the understanding of 2000 was still like, there was still remnants of like the Charlie Lau era, right? So like, yep. you, you, like you could look at a guy who like was like 5'8", but like could get the barrel of the ball pretty well and poke things through the hole, and you would think that guy like possessed a skill set that would be desirable. So like, if I was that guy who like wasn't, fundamentally very fast or like or super strong I lifted a little bit and whatever but you know could hit could get the barrel to the ball like there were still people in the world that thought that that was a quality that would translate into becoming a major league player there was still at some point no one thinks that now like zero people think that because it doesn't like you have to be a physical specimen you don't have a choice because everybody else is yep yeah, it's, it's it's cool that the way that the base, baseball has like evolved. I mean, I feel like the more like 
there's just more and more data being used like all the time, which is it's a challenge on people like us, right? Because we have to like be ahead of the curve on that and make sure yeah. that we're advising people in the right way to do the right things. Yeah. Um, but it's good because it, it, a lot of the dogmatic stuff is kind of falling away. I mean, there's definitely residue of it all over the place, but it's just a matter of time before it kind of, you know, is quieter and quieter. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, so anyway, so you started head coaching. So you were under George McDonald for a while, and then, you know, you're the head coach at Marshall now. Um, how was that, like, experience, like, getting your own program? Like, I'm sure that you took some things from coaches that you played for in the past and coaches you worked under to try to, like, you know, devise your own program. But, you know, talk a little bit about the process, about how you actually, you know, made up your own program. Yeah, um... You know, program design uh, doesn't exist in a vacuum, and so the, the biggest thing is, I, I actually don't think that our our program looks a whole lot like any of the programs that I ever played for, or it's just a different time, and the way that right. co- high school coaches operate in this area is different than it, the way it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, like, I wouldn't talk to my high school coach until you got to the season, high school practice practice constituted like we're going to take BP, we're going to take in, infield, outfield, and then, then we're done. It's going to last an hour and a half, and then that's, that's the end of it. That was There were some programs around here then that did not do that, that were much more involved, but you know, there's, it's not a good – there wasn't a whole lot to pull from um, uh, in, in, in creating my own program. I would say like the thing that creates my program – in, you know, this is year six. The biggest influence on year six is what happened in year five. And, and the biggest influence on year five was what happened in year four. And, because it's a, it's a, um, it's a sort of a constant building process. And what I think about, um, we evolved like pretty well with our players. Your players change. They're not the same kids. They're, they, they change all the time. You, you know, I've graduated a ton of guys over the you know the six years that I've been head coach and you end up having to because you don't choose them you they, they're at your school I don't recruit them uh you have right. to kind of constantly adapt to that um the rules and how you can what you can do keep changing uh I I'm like I'm not one of those people who there are programs around here that are like an absolutely 100% year-round program um uh you know th- they've got four, four days a week of throwing through the fall and all that kind of stuff. And I don't believe in that. Uh, I personally, I'm not doing, I'm just not going to do that because it's not like we're getting paid a full-time wage. We're getting paid like 800 bucks a year. So it's right. You know, that's not why you do it. You don't do it for the money, but at some point it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's overkill. Um, it, it's right. too, too bad of a thing. Uh, and the, but, more importantly, I uh, I don't – I think playing too much baseball is not great, especially in the way that a high school coach can do stuff with their kids. You only have so many resources. Your practices are going to look relatively the same for like a whole year. If you're just running a year of practices or a year of – a team context is a terrible way to do skill work. It stinks. It's not good. Like as somebody who also exists in the training world – like you just you 
and tr- oftentimes tries to take that training world into a high school baseball team, it's, it, it's not, it doesn't work. Because the reasons the kids are at your program is not because, it's because they want to play ball, it's not necessarily because they want to train. So you're only going to get good responses out of the kids who are like hyper committed, and you can try to create that by force, but you don't really have the ability to make that high level of accountability with high school kids if you can't replace them. And I'm not, I'm not looking to do any of that. I don't really want to replace right. kids. I don't want to do any of that stuff. Yeah. It's just why the thing happen, is there is not to constantly, you know, not to take a bunch of kids and say like, oh, you're not committed. Well, you get the hell out of here. We'll find somebody else or blah, blah, blah. We just don't, I don't do that. In a training context, the kids who show up to you have, there's a financial investment obviously on the part of the parents, but the reason they're there is because they've already decided that they're looking for something different. That's not why right. the kids are there for you. For, so you can't, it's really, it's like almost impossible to take training concepts and, and place them into a high school baseball program. I know there are right. some guys who, who think that they do that, and I don't mean to, like, uh, you know, disparage anybody who thinks that they do that, but I do not think that the people who think they do that actually do that. I think they use, they, I don't think that what they're doing is actually training. It's just... Well, I feel like it's definitely not a, it's definitely not applicable in like a in like a, a public school environment like you have, right? I mean, like if right. it were like a private school and like you recruited all your guys to be there and like you know everyone that was there was like hyper committed, then obviously you could set it up that way. But right, but like but you didn't you know, even still even still have the the resources that it takes, the amount of time that it takes, like you know you know in R and D. I mean, I mean, I'm here. 40 hours a week, and most of the kids that train here are here for 15 or 20 hours a week. It's like right. a, it's a, it's a it's a big thing for them. I can't mandate for a bunch of high school kids that they be there for 15 to 20 hours a week. Like, and when I do, when you know, I, I could, but I, there's the chances that I get more than like the four or five kids that are already at R&D to do it is like zero. Like they're not gonna Yeah, do it. and you and if you were you spent that time you personally you'd be begging for money on the street corner. I'd, like, I'd, I'd, yeah, wouldn't. I'd be done. Like I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, I'd be like putting a quarter in your jar when I'm going. Right. <laughs> That's yeah, not, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It'd, it'd so. be <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Not possible. Um, yeah. That's interesting though. Um, it's funny because like a lot of people will ask me to like work with their whole team like at the same time, and just from a with a just the mechanics of how to actually get things done. If you yeah. put like 12 people in front of me at the same time and everyone's like, Hey, teach me the swing. I'm like, I don't even really know what to do either because there's so many people, you know what yeah, I mean? Everyone not, has yeah. like little different things that they need to work on. And obviously you can program for like strength training and like, you know, learning how to learn, do like basic movement patterns. But like when you actually get down to it, everyone has like little different stuff that they need. Right. So I always like recommend people like, look, we got to do small groups of some kind. Cause like the whole, like, 12 people at once thing, like it's never going to work in the way that you think it's going to work. Like yeah. you're going to think I'm providing value because I'm standing there, but I'm not yeah. actually providing value. You know what I mean? Right. Hey, just want to jump in really quick on this point and say that I don't want you guys to hear this and think that I don't work with teams. I do work with teams. I'm just very critical about the way that I work with teams. Um, when I'm doing in-person stuff, it has to be small groups for the value to still be high. Um, and if I'm doing stuff online, everyone kind of has like their own individual lessons within the team that the coaches are invited to. Um, so I just want to take a quick second to clarify that a lot of people have made a lot of money in baseball and softball, 
by teaching high volume um, lessons or training or camps or whatever, where they just have like a ton of people at the same time. And, and that's one of the things that is kind of like uh, not ruined baseball instruction, but it certainly has assembly lined it. And I never want to be a part of that machine. So that was something that I made a conscious decision of when I started my business. Yeah. So like now take that concept and extrapolate it into a high school baseball program in which you cannot restrict who shows up. So if I have a green day practice, I, I'm going to get anywhere between seven and 53 kids that show up with, <laughs> and try to do that same stuff. Like, and it's not just yeah. me. I'll have, yeah. you know, four or five assistant coaches there, but the four or five assistant coaches might have slightly varied opinions about how to train anything. Like we try, we're, we try to get on the same page as much as we possibly can, but I've gotten into like, like a completely results-based focus. Like, what do we want our players to functionally be able to do, like from a results standpoint? And then each coach kind of gets their own chance to get in a kid's ear about how to go about doing that, which I don't actually think is an effective way of of meaningfully influencing that. But it's really the only one available. So, right. yeah, no, that's. I hear you. It's, it's, it's a challenge. So, um, so what's, what's like, what's next? Do you want to continue doing what you're doing? Are you trying to, you know, like have a, a college job or is that not down the line for you? Or? Um, if the right college job, it'd have to be a local one because like, and oh, one that's like, now, right? yeah, too. And, uh, um, and like functionally, I, I'm, I'm good friends with Liam Bowen. He's the pitching coach at UMBC. He's done a phenomenal okay. job with UMBC. Like they, he is a smart freaking dude. He went to McAllister. He's like, he's a D3 guy just like me. We had very similar playing careers. He's gotten to be a D1 pitching coach, uh, having gone to a lot of like very random places in Kentucky and Tennessee somewhere along the way. And right. they got to the, they got to the NCAA tournament last year and he got a bunch of calls from pretty big schools asking him to be their pitching coach. And we, so we, I asked him, I was like, why did you take any of them? He's like, I'm willing to accept about 0% of, of uh, uh, like, employment risk in my life. Like, I don't want any risk, like zero. At UMBC, we could have a good year, we could have a bad year. They want us to run a program in a particular way, which is very easy to do. Like, they want our guys to have good grades. They want us to hold our kids accountable um, and, like, you know, from a, from a character standpoint. But if we win or lose – the way they feel like look, what looks good on the school is just having kids graduate and that kind of thing. So they're not like, they're not too worried about like winning conference. They love it, but they're not, he's not losing That's his job. Not the end all be all, yeah. Right. Anywhere else, he's like incre- exponentially increasing the amount of risk in that. Right. Yeah. A lot I feel of like it's just the business of not getting fired. Like that's right. all your, like, how do I not get fired? So then he asked, so then he asked what himself, a challenge, what, yeah. Yeah, so then he asked himself the question, like, what do I, what do I like about this or what, do, what do I value in coaching? And it's the relationship with the kids. Do I have a, a great relationship with the kids at UNBC and are they great kids? Yes. Why are they great kids? Because I recruited them. Do, what, what, what is lacking? Maybe resources compared to like a UVA or a Maryland Shore. Like, you get that. But that's 95% of the places that one would coach at would lack resources relative to those programs. So right. as it applies to me, I would love, I, I, I'm like, I would like to go to an under-resourced Division One program coach. I think that would be great. And not just because I think that would probably involve less, like, employment volatility than coaching at, like, a very well-resourced one, 
but also because like the magic is in taking under-resourced things and figuring out the puzzle to make that thing work and be as successful as something that had the privilege of resource. That's right. I mean, the, the, the Brad Stevens magic, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Route. I mean, like right. everyone thinks he's a genius and he is, and it's because he coached Butler. You know what I right. mean? Like, I probably have a genius complex, like somewhere in there where like, it's, I love okay. working, yeah. I love working with kids, but part of what part of, it's more like I, I, the drive for me is, oh, is not necessarily to have people say that I'm a genius, although, like, that would be awesome, because, just, <laughs> I hear because, you, man. because that's great, yeah. but, but it is, like, looking at the puzzle and trying to figure out the answer, you know what right. I mean, and that, that, that is, in that whole process of stuff, and I, I, like, Marshall is partly that endeavor, because we weren't really that successful a program, it's got a really good history, but did not have a very good recent history, so working through that puzzle is, has been fun for sure, um, but if there was an opportunity to you know to do a, a similar thing, I would never go to another high school like in a million years. It would never happen. Um, but college could be fun. But again, yeah. you know, it's a rarity uh, to get that opportunity. So yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I toyed with. I mean, I'm nowhere in a position like you are. I was very like outside of baseball for a really long time and I don't like I don't coach a high school or anything like that but like I have a bunch of friends that are like coaching college um just like as assistants and man like if you're if you want to climb the ladder that way like being an assistant in college like that's a really really hard life yeah it's yeah my it's really hard my my thinking is and that's probably why I probably I've aged out of that because it's and that was where the five years out of baseball like nicked me a little bit because if out of out of Hamilton, if instead I instead of going to I lived in Boston for a year or two before I before I went overseas, and instead of making that decision, if I had been like the volunteer assistant at like you know Mohawk Valley Community College or somewhere around Hamilton, that I mean right. that's how you start it, right? When you when you're 23 and it doesn't matter functionally, like you don't have any other responsibility, you can like sleep on somebody's couch and work like at a diner and and then have enough time to coach and then keep getting better jobs and that kind of thing at this point like the entry level for me has to be in a place where there's sustainability for my family which is probably you know it's probably not possible unless like somebody that it's going to happen it would happen from somebody that i've coached and getting a really good job like somebody that i coached becoming a head coach at you know, whatever. Somewhere. Some yeah. school. Insert, insert anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's yep. interesting. Um, are there any, uh, any like, things that you recommend, like, people, like, listening to, like, to read or, or watch or something that was, like, impactful for you, like, in your career, whether it's really anything, um, whether it's, like, you know, learning about, you know, throwing, hitting, et cetera, or just about, like, approaching, like, this kind of stuff in life. Yeah, I think there's um I mean, there's obviously so much stuff out there. Uh and there's lots of guys that whose opinions I appreciate in small doses and I think, you know, um more than anything I think just reading a lot of different people and trying to like trying to process and absorb counter arguments to whatever current argument it is that you like 
is really important um, on everything in life probably, but certainly on hitting mechanics or pitching mechanics or whatever because, you know, you may feel this way. I, I definitely do that. Like the things that I believed wholeheartedly were true about hitting and pitching 10 years ago, I now believe like wholeheartedly are false. And that, Same, yeah. but I think probably in 10 years, I'll look at what I believe now and think the same thing. Like, I mean, think, think that what I now believe in 2018 is false. Like it's going to evolve in some way, you know, yeah. I always, I thought Tom House like ended the conversation and all Tom House ever did was like begin the conversation. And I didn't see it as the beginning of the conversation, but it was clearly the beginning and not the end as it relates to pitching. I think that's probably, you know, so it just tells you that it's really important to constantly, um, constantly try to absorb argument, counter argument, everything you can and not to think about anything too dogmatically. But, you know, Eric Cressy for me endures only in the sense that he provides a lot of um, a lot of free content, and that free content is, I think, irrefutable. Actually, I mean, I think yeah, we're talking great. about like basic human movement. That's the that's the area of you know the area of irrefutability. So, because like there's I, a lot I, of a lot of coaches that don't spend enough time on that component of it. Like they, and I'm guilty of that too. Like in the past. However long I've like the last year, I've really spent a lot more time like in lessons and training or whatever, like training the ascent, like the basic human movements, and then yeah, and bring the swing in like later. But it's tough because like people pay you, they're like, I want a hitting lesson, you know what I mean? So it's like, right. how do you kind of balance that? Yeah, um, there's a, there's one other guy, and this is going to be weird, and I actually don't think that most people will be able to track anything that he's ever said, but Gary Ward, who was the the Hitting, he's a college baseball Hall of Famer. He was the hitting coach, or he was the head coach at Oklahoma State through the 80s and 70s, 80s, and early 90s, and uh, was like, I think probably qualifies as the first like biomechanically driven hitting guru. If you're if you're not looking at Ted Williams as the first biomechanically driven hitting guru, because his was really just opinions about hitting, uh, right. but but Gary actually like looked very carefully at how the human body moves. Ted Williams just happened to be right about all of it, but, um, but Gary Ward, I thought was like an absolute, I, I had a player who played for him in New Mexico state and I didn't think he was a crackpot as a person, but I thought his hitting stuff was like way wacky. And then every year that I learned a little bit more or, you know, things seem to be more scientifically driven or there seems to be more of like a, this is really how it is. As things evolve, people are evolving to him and something that he believed in 1981. So it's like, that's interesting to me. Like, I, my opinion on him has shifted dramatically in the last seven years. So It's so so crazy how people can be, like, not wrong just really, really early. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, exactly. people are called crazy. Like, visionaries are called crazy. And then, you know, 30 years later, you realize that they were just a visionary and you just weren't even on their level. You know what I mean? Yeah. And crazy. He, in his case, it he won like like twenty of twenty five Big Twelve championships. Like it's not like it's not like there wasn't good evidence to believe that he was right. Just like there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence to believe that Ted Williams was right. But but because things looked funny from an aesthetic point of view with, with Gary Ward's hitting system, 
it was and looked very different from what it's so different from what everybody else is. It's like go back to that web of, web of belief thing I was talking about earlier in philosophy and epistemology and how people decide something is true. It was too far outside of that box. It was too far outside of that thing, and it like shook the foundation of the current belief system too much for me to believe that it actually worked. Right, and then I think that most people felt the same way about Gary Ward. Like, why wouldn't anybody? If a guy won 20 of 25 consecutive ACC championships, the guy won five of six ACC championships. These days, everybody would do what that guy was doing. Everybody, Coastal Carolina won a championship, and everybody wanted to do what they were doing. It only took yeah. one, right? So, well, I think it just speaks to the communication now too, just like yeah. how quickly things, you know, like. It's it's the internet changed everything and it's it's tough though I mean like you always I always try to read read things and this is kind of exactly what you were saying a different way of saying it I always try to read whatever I'm reading like an alien walking out of a spaceship who's never had any experience with the subject matter at all yeah just try to be like as neutral as possible it's I mean obviously you always have biases and it's like hard to you know eliminate those and I'm not saying I'm able to do that I don't think anyone is but trying to like quiet those as much as you can when you're having in anything is really important. Yeah. Um, all right. One last one. Um, and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Um, it has nothing to do. It's, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and a lot of them always ask the same question to everyone. So what's your favorite movie and why? <laughs> Just random question. We're going with it. Um, mm, that changes over time too. Um, like probably the, the movie that I've seen the most in my life is Aliens. I love space movies. Uh, Interesting. Like, I, I segue that we didn't we didn't communicate that before, guys. We we no alien talk before I said aliens. So keep going. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. So <laughs> so yeah. So yeah, it's just Aliens is the best of that series of movies, like without a doubt, in my opinion. Um, because there's like, there's, I'm not an action movie guy per se, but like that's James Cameron's best stuff. Like it's freaking awesome. Like the, the whole military scene and then like dropping on, like rolling through these like, these crazy caverns and, 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 you know, aliens jumping out of the walls and that kind of thing. Um, that's, that's great. But there's also that like, there's the, the building on the like that sort of family structure that Sigourney Weaver and the little girl have that's fundamental to all James Cameron movies. Um, like everything centers around like a, a mother daughter relationship or a father son relationship or a father daughter relationship or something like that. Um, but you know, that's in general, I just kind of like space movies. Um, and I think that's the best one. So are you a big star Wars guy too? Yeah, except I haven't seen any of the, the new ones. I haven't either. Like um, any of them. And I and I love Star Wars, but I, I haven't seen... Star Wars is a little bit different, though. That's like... It's reached... Not that Aliens wasn't a hugely commercial thing, but it was like hugely commercial in 1990, so you're getting to it late. But like, that that's reached a... That's not sci-fi. It's it's another thing where it's like... It's a, it's a genre unto itself. There's like everything else, and then there's Star Wars. Yeah, I don't know how to classify it either. It's it's a tough one. Yeah, it's I don't um, think it's a, it's not a subject matter thing. It's how it, how it exists in like the public consciousness. 
It's not, it, mm. it, it exists on. Got it. So like you're, you're saying that sci-fi is kind of like a, it's like a niche almost. It's like a little, its own like little thing, but Star Wars is so mainstream now well, that it kind of like breaks the definition of sci-fi. It breaks the definition of movies. Like it, it, it huh. is, there's nothing, nothing has ever been as big as that franchise, right? It is like the largest, some of the Marvel comics movies are kind of getting like this too, but it has its, it's not an action, you know, Star Wars is not an action movie. It's not a sci-fi movie. It's not any of that stuff. Like, Aliens is sci-fi. Like, The Martian, which I love very much, too. Actually, that was the first thing I was thinking I was going to say. The Matt Damon movie. Again, space movie, NASA. Love it. Um, I haven't like, seen it. i got to watch that one. That one's great. That one's great because it's like MacGyver in space. Like, Okay. <laughs> Biologist gets left on Mars because they think he's dead. He's got to figure out how to live. And so he, like, you know figures out he takes some potatoes and like cuts the little bits off of them and turns them into seeds and like figures out a way to, you know, uh, get some water out of the hatch and so he can grow them. It's, it's cool. It's a good, it's a good movie. And it's, it's, it's funny. There's some funny bits. It's it's well paced. I like that. It's good. Um, check it out. But anyways, Um, I think, I feel like star Wars is just its own thing. Not because of the content, but because of how it, how people relate to it, um, and right. how a lot of people relate to it. So, well, Alien's got 98 on Rotten Tomatoes. It's pretty good in my book. I just looked it up when you were talking. It's about good. It. It's a, it's a yeah. really, it's the best one of that series. Although Alien is really good, Aliens is pretty. It, it, Aliens is the best, and then it kind of like sucks after a little, <laughs> yeah a i mean and that's the way a lot of those work unfortunately yeah yep did james cameron do all of those is that like his totally no his it was um he... really ridley scott started the franchise it was really ridley scott's first huge film with alien james cameron did alien they sent it two directors after that so the next two installments one of them was the guy who did Gone Girl and has done like some really fantastic movies since oh, then. Oh yeah! Was, but it was his first film, and they kind of screwed him. Um, Hold on, they didn't I'm let him. Up. They didn't give him enough creative license to do a good job with it. Yeah, then, I know. Oh, Fincher. Fincher. Yeah, exactly. He's done great stuff, uh, but they. It was, he was like right out of film school when he did that, and they they. Yeah, he's, like, obsessive about the movies that he puts out. I mean, he's yeah. put out Flight Club, Seven, Gone Girl, The Social Network, Zodiac. Yeah, he's done, he's done amazing, amazing stuff. If, they, if he redid that movie now, he'd kill it. It'd be awesome. But at the time, they, they, he, just had, he didn't have enough credibility to be, right. to be given the amount of license to do a good job with it. Um, and then Prometheus and Alien Covenant are, like, the new, the two new prequels that Ridley Scott did. And those are both... Better than three and four, but not, not that all, not that great. They're okay. They're okay. Yeah. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day that was talking about if you're like a film nerd, that uh, Fincher's movie Zodiac is like one of the best movies to watch. It's like absurdly long, and it's, I, sometimes I guess it can be like hard to get through. But yeah. how like obsessive he is about like all the things that are around in each scene for like the time frame. Yeah. That the that it's like shot in is just like absurd. So if you want to nerd out, that's a good one, I guess. Yeah. But, but all right, man. Well, thank you for the, thank you for, uh, you know, penciling me in for some time. Um, yeah. I'm going to try to do this more. So, uh, you know, I guess stay cool. tuned.
And yeah. the podcast is called the Base Path Podcast. I'll send you okay. when it's up. When it's up. Great. Good deal, man. Uh, all right, man. Thanks again. Thanks again to Coach Aaron Tarr for coming on the podcast. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I know the perfect person to be interviewed on this podcast. Um, I'd love your feedback. Um, I'd love you to give me an interview recommendation. My email is Kurt, K-U-R-T, at ignitebaseball.org. Looking forward to hearing from you. Until next time, folks.